We speak often of the living and active nature of the Word of God. I trust that those truths and realities are present in your mind and excite your soul as we come together to worship. That the Word of God is living and active. When we say that, we're saying when we come, we encounter Jesus Christ in the text of Holy Scripture. That we encounter the words of God in the Gospels, the person and the words of Jesus Christ. And as we encounter Him, we get to know Him. Our hearts are filled with love for Him and we are moved to obedience to Him. I trust that that never grows boring or dull for you, the encounter of Jesus Christ in the Word. Once again, we're back in Luke, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 6, we're kind of moving now away from the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, uh, that uh, Jesus is speaking. And so we're moving away from that, and we're coming to, there's sort of two now interactions, two contexts over two days in which Jesus will encounter two different people, interact with them, and through this we're going to see two miracles And hopefully in these miracles we'll learn a couple things, we'll be encouraged by Jesus Christ. This morning there's a little bit less of an outline and more just observations as we walk through these two stories. If you remember, let's not move away from our context. Our context is Jesus Christ coming to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He tells us that in Luke chapter 4, He has come to proclaim the kingdom I know I've reviewed this last couple weeks. We'll review it once more, though. We've seen the kingdom explained to us in the Gospel of Luke in three ways. One, it's simply the rule and the reign of Jesus. Anywhere where the king is, there is the kingdom. Secondly, it is the arrival of the Messiah. You remember, as Mark says at Jesus' birth, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then thirdly, which has been our emphasis and will continue to be our emphasis this morning, is the kingdom of God is the age to come invading the age that is passing away. Light invading darkness. Jesus Christ and His kingdom and authority coming and taking control and invading and overcoming the domain of darkness. And so in that, we find ourselves even in that now. The kingdom of God present and upon us, but yet not fully realized. The age to come, invading the age that is passing away. Citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of God under His rule and reign right now. In the midst of an age that is passing away. And so Jesus Christ throughout Luke now has been proclaiming the kingdom. Here is what the kingdom looks like. And He does that through the Sermon on the Mount. The proclamation of the kingdom And in that, he takes a step back and he says, okay, now citizens of the kingdom, here is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he's laid out a few things for us. Loving your enemy. Judging not. Not being a judgmental person, but instead loving mercy. Quick to forgive. And then he kind of lays out an outline. Here is what it looks like for the kingdom citizens. You remember last week. It starts with, coming to God, that is putting yourself in a position where you will encounter God in His Word, in prayer, in the fellowship of the believers, putting yourself in a place where you can hear God speak. Beyond coming to God then, listening. We listen to God. It is to hear, to give attention to, to meditate upon, to be instructed by. 
Not just to kind of come and show up and go through the motions, but to set your mind to listen. And then the last one, and then do or go. It is obedience. Last week we looked at that as Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? That's empty praise, that's empty talk. If you say, Lord, Lord, you are my master, you are my intimate king and master, and by the way, I'm going to do what I want and not worry about what you say. And he tells us then that by your fruit you will know your heart. We gave you an illustration that you can't have apples hanging out there but claim, well, I'm actually an orange tree, I just have a bunch of apples. And we like to do that of... Okay, we're marked by dishonesty. We're marked by that dumb water cooler is beeping all the time. That's what that is, in case you hear it. Um, where we use the example of Alex Rodriguez. I went back and looked at his statement. If you remember, Alex Rodriguez was a baseball player, cheated on PEDs, performance enhancing drugs, and he lied about it for a long time, and all of it came up. And so once he finally, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt, he did it. He stands before everyone and he, goes, he starts his statement with, I am not a liar, I am not a cheater, I respect the game of baseball. You realize like, he's lied about it for the last five years, he's been cheating nonstop for the last five years and showing disrespect for the game of baseball. It, that's what we want to say is, this is who I am. Like, forget what I did, this is who I am. And the text is telling us, no, by your fruit we will know your heart. And so when we examine the fruit, then we don't turn to like, how can I make that orange look more like an apple? But we turn back to examine the heart. What is at the root? The other illustration, what foundation am I built upon? And so we come now to the end of that discourse, and now we're going to come, Jesus Christ, and we're going to see once again the demonstration of the kingdom of God through these two encounters, one with the centurion and then one with the widow and her son. We encounter Jesus Christ. We've talked about the kingdom of God as Christ coming, invading the domain of darkness, and reversing the curse. I love that imagery of coming and, and as far as the curse is found, renewing and reversing and redeeming and rescuing from the curse. There's a Christmas song, Joy to the World, that basically lays out perfectly the demonstration of the kingdom and Jesus coming. Listen, I'm going to read some of the lyrics for you. A little Christmas time here in September. It says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. The second verse, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. The third verse, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. The fourth verse, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Behold the kingdom of God coming, invading the domain of darkness and reversing the curse. And in these two interactions, we'll see that. One more comment on the context. 
these two interactions have already been hinted at, I think, back in Luke 4. You remember in Luke 4, Jesus, his popularity is starting to grow. He returns to his hometown there in Nazareth, and he stands to speak to the people. And everyone, he's, the hometown hero is back. There is a buzz. Everyone's excited. He comes, and he opens up the scroll, kind of the production that that is. They bring out the scroll, and he reads just a short little section from Isaiah chapter 61 that he is the one who is coming to give blind, sight to the blind and to rescue the oppressed and to relieve the poor. And then he claims that he is that one. And the people are amazed at his speech, but there's some confusion. They're starting to question him. And so Jesus then goes a little further, and he gives two illustrations, two examples of what the kingdom of God is going to look like and what is going to be marking the kingdom of God. And the illustrations that he gives is first about the grace that went out to the widow of Zarephath, a Gentile woman of little importance and little stature, and God is gracious to her. And then to Naaman, a commander in the Syrian army, an enemy of God's people. By faith, he goes to the river and dunks himself in the river, and he is healed, and God is gracious to that Syrian commander. And you remember the reaction they went from being like, we love Jesus, we can't wait to hear him preach, to by the end of that sermon, they're carrying him out to the edge of town to push him off a cliff and kill him. Because the nature of the kingdom is so totally different than what they think. The nature of the kingdom, he's saying, is not ethnocentric. It's not for one ethnicity. It's not for one race. It's not for a certain individual who is worthy. It's not for religious elite. It is for all peoples and it is for the humble. It is for the poor. It is for the oppressed. It is for those who recognize, no matter how much they have, they are still the blind, the humble, and the poor. In need of looking outside of them for a Savior. And so we realize Jesus didn't come as they wanted, not as that military hero swinging a sword, not as kind of a political uh, champion for the Jewish people. He came as a lowly servant, but he did not come timid and weak. He came to take on and defeat the domain of darkness. So with that as our background and our context, thinking of those two earlier examples that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 4 then, we come now and we see Elijah and Elisha and their interactions, we now see a more fulfilled picture of that in Jesus Christ's interactions. So, the centurion. Let's just take a little bit of time and look at the centurion. First, a centurion was a soldier. The Roman army, he commanded, anyone guess how many people he commanded? A hundred people. Someone say 50? Is that Jim that said 50? No, it's a hundred. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, he commanded a hundred people. So it's not the highest ranking official that there is in uh, the Roman army, but it was a prestigious position. He had people above him, as we see, and people below him. He was a commander in, in that sense. There was a good deal of chance to build wealth, especially if you were successful in your military campaign. So there's some prestige or some wealth in that position. A centurion couldn't be married. He needed to be kind of wholly dedicated 
both in his mind and uh, his physical prowess to the army and to carrying out these military campaigns. And often they would be sent for up to 20 years, kind of, even as this centurion, relocated away from his home to be kind of an authority in a land that they had, had taken captive or they had taken possession of. So unmarried, which helps us understand his great compassion for his servant, doesn't it? I mean, you think, who is he going to be closest to with no family around him as he moves around? He's going to be closest with those who work right closely with him and the servants and those who are in his household he becomes very close with. And so you see that of his great concern for this servant as well. So we come and you heard Caleb read the story just a moment ago, so we won't repeat all of it. The centurion, we see that his servant is incredibly sick, near the point of death. The centurion is moved with compassion and care for him. Apparently, the centurion had heard of Jesus. He had heard of the miracles that he was working, the authority with which he taught the uniqueness of this prophet, Jesus. And he has a level of belief and faith right from the very beginning that Jesus can heal this man, that Jesus can be the answer to the problem for his servant. We learn a little more from the text that the centurion is one who is very close with the Jewish people there in Capernaum, the town in which he gives some oversight to. He's used his wealth to build them a synagogue. You'll see in a moment as these Jewish leaders go to Jesus, they call him a lover of the Jewish people. Most likely in the language of that day, he'd be considered a God-fearer. That is someone who loved the God of Israel, someone who maybe in his way worshipped the God of Israel, but was not a proselyte, had not officially kind of joined the Jewish people. So not a proselyte, but one who fears the God of Israel. And so he has a a measure of love and compassion. So he sends these Jewish leaders to Jesus. Now this probably wasn't just random that he asked Jewish leaders to go to Jesus or just a matter of convenience. He knows Jesus as a, a Jewish man. He thinks is probably more likely to hear the requests from Jewish religious leaders than he is from this Gentile centurion. And so he sends these religious leaders out to get Jesus. As they come to Jesus and they begin to plead with Jesus to come and to to help out the centurion, we're posed with a really important question, and just a question we're going to pause on for a little while. And it's this, what makes someone worthy of the kindness and grace of God. What makes someone worthy of the grace of God? Or to build on our kingdom motif we've been building, what is the nature of the kingdom? How does one receive grace and mercy from God? So the elders come and they make this plea and it begins with, he's worthy for you to come. 
he's worthy for you. And, and here's why. And what we've talked about already, he's, he's generous. He's built us a synagogue. I mean, he's not Jewish, but he's really close. He, look how nice he is to the Jewish people. He, he's a lover of the Jewish people. You think about the list that could be said of, of this centurion that would make him worthy for Christ to come to him, worthy for the mercy and kindness of Jesus. We see the centurion. He was kind to those in need. He cared for those who worked for him. I mean, his, his heart's broken for this servant. He held an important and powerful position, and he used it for good, it looks like. I mean, that's not the common story you hear of the Roman soldiers in the land that they conquered and how they interact with the Jewish people. This is unique in his kindness towards them. He was wealthy. He was an impressive figure. The centurions were. They picked the impressive people. There's a whole list of things that can be laid at his account to say, hey, he is worthy of your mercy. He is worthy of your grace. He is worthy of your kindness. But the story continues and we get a different perspective. Jesus comes. He, he decides, I'll come with the elders to the centurion's house. We don't know all the details in between how long this journey was or anything. But he's on his way. The centurion evidently knows this is happening, so now he maybe rethinks things a bit and he sends out a second group of, of friends. And this delegation meets Jesus and they come with the same request of help but in a very different way. And you look what he says there in verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to them, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Totally different approach. I am unworthy for the Lord to come, for his mercy, for his kindness. Therefore, I did not even presume to come to you myself. But say the word and let my servant be healed. And then he goes on to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. This is a kingdom promise, a kingdom reality we have looked at again and again. And that is Jesus Christ's authority. His authority over spiritual realm. His authority over the physical realm. His authority over the natural realm. He is king. He stands in absolute authority. And by the grace of God and some sort of special illumination, this centurion realizes, he's, he knows authority. He's not bragging in this text. He's just saying, I know authority. I answer to really high people, high-ranking officials. Very possibly he's stood before the Roman emperor. And he has people under him. So he knows what authority is. He knows you say the word, and if you're powerful enough, people jump to it. And he recognizes in Jesus this authority, but an absolute type of authority, kingdom authority. 
Authority that we've talked about in the past, that sometimes in our living we say, Lord, Lord, recognizing His authority, but then we live a life that in no way recognizes that authority, that places ourselves in submission to His Word, in obedience to Him. And you see the response of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus turns it to a moment to teach. He turns to the crowd that was following him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It pleased Jesus greatly. There's one other time in Scripture where it talks about Jesus marveling. Oh, that's interesting. In uh, Mark chapter 6, when he's in Nazareth with his friends and family, and they reject his message. It says that he marvels at their unbelief. Marvels at the unbelief of those closest to him. And here is this centurion, and he marvels at his faith. What makes this man worthy? Nothing makes him worthy. But what brings the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God, two things we see over and over and over again, humility and faith. Humility and faith. The Lord has laid it out time and time again. The kingdom is for those who are humble and who believe. The kingdom is marked by humility and faith. He has come for the poor, come for the blind, come for the oppressed. Yes, in a physical sense, but yes, in a spiritual sense. There are people who might look in the world's eyes very successful and yet can be incredibly humble when they realize their poverty and their blindness apart from Christ. The grace of God is for those who humbly look outside themselves to Him for help, for mercy, for grace, for those who believe. We went over some of this in our Calvin Club reading, but there's ways of talking about one receiving grace from God. There's what they call the efficient cause, and that is always God and His sovereign dispensing of grace. There's a material cause, and that is, and what is the conduit then? It's always through Jesus Christ and His accomplishments for us. But then the Scripture is clear, and it lays out instrumental causes, not what earning, not meriting, but what is it that allows someone to receive grace, to receive mercy? It is humility and faith. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Pride is something that all of us battle with at some level. Some more often and more severely than others. But pride is a battle that we all face And Scripture over and over and over again, I was amazed at all the references that talk about God working against the proud and the arrogant and God working for the humble. 
for those who continually recognize their need, recognize others' needs and interests above themselves, those who look to the Word and look to God and use that as a mirror instead of looking at other people and comparing who they're better than, who they're not better than, those kind of always positioning themselves to receive glory and flattery, or those positioning themselves to point glory to Christ. What is it Paul says in, in Philippians? Remember, as he would go through his list in Philippians 3, if, if anyone would have religious reasons to boast, Paul said it would be me. And he, he was born in the right family, in the right town, uh, with the right clan of people. He went to the right school and got the right education. And he knew the right languages, and he kept the law the right way. And he goes through, in each of these areas, I'm elite. <laughs> and in the end, he says, I, I count it as nothing. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, obviously, the ultimate example of humility, being the form of God, said, humbled himself, became obedient to the Father, all the way to death on the cross. And as we look at, then, what is humility and faith? How do we, how do we work that in our lives And we see it, humility and faith, produced through what we've seen earlier. And that is to go to God, to put yourself under His authority, to give yourself to the Word and to prayer, to examine yourself in light of the Word, to listen, to give careful attention, to meditate upon. And then in the end, to realize He is Lord and so I obey. It's not just enough to say, yeah, I'm humble, you're better than me, and live totally in a way that does not at all reflect that confession. Scripture is clear over and over again. An instrumental cause for the grace of God in your life is humility and faith. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. One last consideration of the centurion, then we'll move to the second story. And that is, I do think most commentators comment on this, and I I agree that part of the reason that the centurion didn't want Jesus to come to his house is, again, he was not a Jewish man, and he was asking a Jew to come to his house, and that wasn't proper for a Jewish person actually to go into the home of a Gentile person for these type of reasons, he would become unclean. He'd have to go through a day of ritual cleansing and purification. And so even as much as the centurion knew and believed about Jesus, he still missed this part of the kingdom. Because you know what? Jesus would have gone into that man's house. Because here's the thing, Jesus would not have become unclean. It is the light invading the darkness. The darker it is, the more brightly the light shines. That's why you find Jesus always in the midst of sinners, in the midst of publicans and tax collectors and all all of these people that they will list and kind of the worst of the worst and the people who society wants nothing to do with. And Jesus goes into the midst of them time and time again. And he doesn't become unclean. He's not just a good prophet. He's not just like the best of priests and the best of miracle workers. He is God-man. 
He is not touched by the curse. We know that all the way at the beginning of Luke because of the virgin birth. A miraculous birth. He's untouched by the curse. And he goes in and he's not affected by the curse, but he reverses it. He renews it. He rescues people from the curse. How beautiful is that? What a testimony and example for us as well that we wouldn't be people who see darkness and think, oh, I can't get anywhere near it. I'm not talking about jump in the middle and become a raunchy person. I'm talking about light and saltiness colliding with darkness. That you live in the midst of it. You go to those in need. Testimony of Christ. But none of us will be like Christ. And here's the glory of the kingdom. Is that it is an invasion of the darkness. And Jesus doesn't become unclean. Instead, he heals and makes whole. And we see Jesus' power and authority once again as he speaks the word. And this servant is healed. So we move on then to our next episode. The widow and her son. Verse 11, it says, Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain. Uh, Some of your texts might say the next day. That's probably what it was, is the next day. So we have two days, two encounters, two miracles. Let's paint the scene here of Jesus as he raises the widow's son. He walks into this town, Nain, kind of a small, unimportant town. Uh, There's not too many people in the town. But as he walks in, he sees this funeral procession, and it looks like everyone in the town is there. There's a big crowd. And you understand how this funeral procession would have worked. There would have been no missing what was going on. It it was custom, no matter how poor a family might be, that you hire people for this funeral procession. There'd be instruments who would fall around, flutes and whatever, playing kind of the dirge as you go on. And then they would hire professional mourners. I know that sounds crazy to us, but that professional mourners and wailers, there's much more expressive and raw than maybe in our Western culture where everything, you know, you kind of hide the emotion a little bit more and everything is a bit more orderly. It wasn't the case there. And so the family of the deceased would lead this funeral procession through town. And in this case, it's a lady walking alone. Apparently not long before, she had walked the same road with her son by her side and her husband deceased being carried behind them. This time, she walks by herself with her son deceased behind her, her only son, the text would tell us. You realize a widow in those days with no other family most likely will resort to begging very soon. People realize, the town must realize kind of the enormity of the situation for her because there's a big crowd sympathizing with her. The son is on the the bier, which is a coffin or or really more like a a wood plank what the body would lay on. Wouldn't it be enclosed but just maybe wrapped up in some cloth? Would be laying on sort of this plank So the mother would walk by, the wailers. And Jesus walks in on this scene. 
verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. The word compassion there, it's not really a strong enough word to communicate what the Greek is saying. It, it kind of gives a picture of, of his inward parts went out to her. That idea of his heart flowed with sympathy and empathy and hurt. It flooded out. He, he ached. We might say your, our heart goes out to them, but even that is kind of a trite saying nowadays. There is incredible compassion as his heart just floods. It, it pours out to her. She's an unimportant widow in an unimportant town, and he sees her, and he just, his heart pours out mercy and compassion. I want to pause here because I think often we don't have the type of picture of Jesus, of our God, that we need to. I, wouldn't, I know I would assume most of us that we don't think at this point that God is just some mean judge up in heaven and that's it. He is love in a general sense. He loves us. He gave a son for us. He is caring. But he is this kind of caring. That his heart floods with pity and with mercy and with grace and with kindness at your plight. Not just like my life in general. I'm talking about day by day. That's what Jeremiah says in the book of Lamentations. His compassions, this same language, this flooding of of mercy and love and kindness never fails. It's new every single morning. That compassion never fails. It's unlike us in so many ways. I think of, of my son, Calvin. As a little kid, a couple months old, I was, I was supposed to be taking care of him on the couch, and I, I don't know what I was doing, but he rolled off the couch. It's like a two-foot fall. And I mean, I oh, like broke my heart. I was so, oh, is he okay? Is he okay? He's almost two now. A week ago, he rode his bike down the concrete steps of the porch, falls off. And my response is, I told you not to ride your bike. <laughs> like, my compassions have begun to fail a little bit, you know? Where my heart flooded out, now I just roll my eyes. I think if you're in a relationship of any sort, you, you probably experienced this. I know I've experienced it with Anna. We've had a couple kids recently and, you know, there's more emotional times, perhaps, during that pregnancy. And it's been a, a rough day, and there's conversation, and, you know, she's kind of emotional and at their wit's end with things. And my compassion is, you know, don't cry. <laughs> like, okay, my compassion failed right there. When Jesus says, weep not, it's not an annoying, stop crying. His compassions, his mercy is new every morning. If you feel like no one's, 
if you feel like you're alone in what you're going through, no one's really quite understanding the confusion, the hurt, the questions, whatever it might be. And it might in that moment feel like even Jesus is, is, he hasn't abandoned me, but he's drawn away during this time. When Jesus sees our weakness, he doesn't roll his eyes. His heart floods with mercy and compassion because of our weakness, because of our stumbling around. And he gives mercy and kindness, whether you recognize it all the time or not, that is fresh and new and life-giving and life-sustaining every single day. That's the God we serve. Not someone drawn away from us, but someone that intimate. The point is the Lord's Prayer in introducing it would say, He knows what we have need of before we ask Him. He will answer it in a better way than we could even ask or understand. His mercies, His compassion is new every morning. And so that sets a framework when he tells her, do not weep. It's not that trite kind of, stop crying. It's, don't weep. <laughs> There's hope. He knows what's about to take place. There's fresh mercy. I think it instructs us a little bit in the face of death as well that there's going to be grief and pain and there's going to be weeping, but it should be mixed for those who have died in Christ with comfort and hope and joy. The Scripture is clear about that. So then Jesus does something interesting in verse 14. He came up and he touches the beer, this plank. And everything stops. You thought it made you unclean to go into a Gentile's home? Well, to touch the coffin or the beer or to be around a dead animal, let alone a deceased human being? I mean, we're talking about weeks of ritual cleansing and purification, and it violates the, the spirit of the ceremony and all of this stuff. You look at Numbers 19, and there's a whole bunch of laws about it. And so when Jesus comes up and he lays his hand on it, I mean, there's something big happening here. And it says everything stops. <laughs> and we see the authority of Jesus once again, Mount. And now we're going to see Jesus' authority over death. When he comes and he places his hand on that, he doesn't become unpure. He doesn't become unclean, but he stops the procession of death in its tracks. The mourning and the weeping turn to fearing and rejoicing and worshiping. The kingdom of God is marked by life, by life giving. Jesus Christ is not affected by this death because he's not affected by sin. He shows his authority. He's come to defeat the final enemy, to defeat death. Once again, he doesn't become unclean or unpure, but he stops death and he brings life. He brings renewal. He brings redemption. That's the kingdom of God. It's marked by those things. We serve a compassionate, merciful Savior who, again, doesn't come weakly or timidly. He comes with an unstoppable mission to overcome darkness 
to overcome this world. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. He set the church on mission. And the gates of hell can't stand against it. The authority and the power of our God. So as we close then, they recognize Jesus as a great priest, great prophet. I'm sorry, in verse 16, fear sees them. They glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. It's true, but he's a lot more than just a great prophet. They say God has visited his people. In Jesus Christ, God has visited his people. This is language used over and over again through the Old Testament as God would visit his people and show a sign or give them a symbol. And from time to time, he'd visit his people in that way. You remember back to Luke as Elizabeth expected the, the beginning of, chapter, of Luke. Elizabeth is expecting the birth of John the Baptist, Mary of Jesus. And they give these songs of praise and they're filled with this language of God visiting his people. And in Jesus Christ, God has visited His people. And it's beautiful. And this text helps rearrange what that looks like. It's it's maybe different than what they were expecting. He's coming in power and authority. Not with a political agenda and a military sword, but He's overcoming darkness and sin, even the final enemy, death. And He's not just collecting the best and the brightest and those who are worthy of this kingdom. He's coming to the poor, the oppressed, and He's setting them free. He's coming to those, us, who are humble and realize we have a desperate need and we look outside of ourselves for it and we find grace and it opens our eyes and we believe. And then we say, Lord, Lord, not just in word but in deed. You realize the glory and the truth of that, that in Jesus Christ, the presence of God is with us. When Jesus is about to die, talks about his resurrection and ascension, he tells them that it's a good thing he's leaving because he's going to leave the Spirit, which is even better for us. That right now, as we gather together, Revelation 2 would say, Jesus Christ walks in the midst of the candlestick. That is the church. Jesus Christ walks in our midst right now. God with us. The Spirit indwells us and unites us. God with us. He has visited His people. And because of Jesus Christ, the presence of God doesn't just bring terror and wrath. It brings mercy and hope. Mercy, like we talked about, of a heart overflowing with compassion. Don't let us individually or us corporately reject that grace because of pride. Comparing ourselves with one another, finding ourselves adequate and worthy in our standing. But let us be humble. Go to Christ listen to Christ, do what He says, and in humility and in faith, partake of the amazing grace. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, King over death. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what it teaches us. 
Lord, might you grant us humility and might you grant us faith. We thank you that you have all authority and all power, that you are the sovereign God and the King of kings. Lord, we thank you that sin did not stand in your way, that death was not an obstacle which you could not overcome, but you defeated the final enemy. Lord, you came to reverse the curse. You were untouched by it until you became a curse for us. Until you bore that curse so that we might know life and renewal and redemption. Thank you that the kingdom of God still is here, still spreading joy and blessing as far as the curse is found. Might we live as obedient citizens of your kingdom. I encourage you just for a moment, remain with your heads bowed, your eyes closed there. You can respond privately to the sermon. In just a moment, the worship team will lead us corporately in response. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up while they're coming. Remind you of some verses in the book of Ephesians. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let's stand together as we worship our God in song.